Welcome to Rose Library Presents Behind the Archives. I'm your host, Lily Tarot, the Community Outreach Archivist at Emory University Libraries, Stuart A. Rose, Manuscript Archives and Rare Book Library in Atlanta, Georgia. In this first season of Behind the Archives, we explore from many perspectives the question, what is an archive? Journey with me to learn from the insights of our guests and explore what we do at Rose Library. In this episode, I talk with Beth Shoemaker, Rare Book Librarian for Rose Library. And Beth, tell us what you do at the Rose. So at Rose Library, I'm the Rare Book Librarian. For me, that means that I do kind of everything related to rare books. So I acquire for our collection. Um, I do all the cataloging, so I make sure that um, you can find it in our online catalog. Um, I do some teaching. I curate exhibits. I kind of kind of wear all the hats, as it were, for rare books at, at Rose Library. And so someone, um, if they were looking at your job title, would they be able to assume or would they not be able to, shouldn't assume if you are a rare book librarian at another institution that you would do the same thing or would you be called a different name or? So rare book librarians do a lot of things. Um, so it might be at another institution that they do mostly sort of um, reference and research and public interface. It might be that uh, the rare book librarian is responsible for buying all the rare books, so they a curatorial kind of role. Um, it could be a, a mix of those things. I don't think there's a lot of rare book librarians who catalog like I do, but um, but it's not unheard of, certainly. I think it has a lot to do with where you have the title. So if you are in an institution that primarily has rare books, um, you may do really specific things, and there may be other rare book librarians as well. Um, in our in, at Rose, of course, we have really big archival holdings and rare books. Um, so, um, just based on on the staff we have, I have a much broader um, set of responsibilities than maybe your average rare book librarian might have. And so, what makes an item rare? What makes it a rare book? That's kind of a moving target. Sometimes it feels like so. Our rare book collection has things from. Um, you know, the 16th century, we have some manuscript items um, that are that are old and also rare, so there aren't a lot of them. Um, we also have um, artist books and things that are done in limited editions or small editions or are single items. So um, those are rare because we have the only one. Um, <laughs> but um, really, I think our definition at Rose is that it also needs to have research value. So it's not as important that we have old books. We do have some really cool old books. Um, we, we have some really cool, relatively new books. What sorts of things do our researchers need to find information? So, um, for example, they may need our um, early 17th century botany text that is pre-Linnaean. They might need... Um, our um, Hooks Micrographia, which is um, basically prints of what things look like under microscopes from um, the late 17th century. They might need an artist book about, um, about marriage equality. They might need, um, 
you know, sort of anything that that complements our other collections or that um, stands alone as something that's a monument of either printing or science or literature um, to sort of see what that record of thought is. We have rare things, but also in other special collections might have different rare or um, one-of-a-kind things um, that we don't have. And that's sort of the the exciting thing about special collections is that um, different ones collect different kinds of things. So depending on the kind of research you want to do, um, you kind of have to think about where you want to go that has what you want to look at. And so this brings me also back to one of the things that we collect and you mentioned um, artist books. Like, I think that is so cool that we um, collect these. And so one artist book may not be the same as the other. And so could you tell our listeners, like, what is an artist book? So an artist book is um, art in the book form. They're created by artists. um, And that may include printing. So fine press printing, um, which means printing it on on a hand-operated press, not off of your computer. Um, It may involve photography. Uh, It may involve printmaking, so um, something like lithography or letterpress printing, so on a printing techniques that are less frequent now but used to be really common in book production. And they really range from everything from... um, we I did an exhibit several years ago about called Common Thread that was about women's voices in artist books. Mm -hmm. Um, So... um, kind of everything from that to um, we, we tend to collect in sort of social justice and civil rights areas generally in our collection. So our artist book collection um, to some extent also mirrors that. So we collect books that are about um, various kinds of civil rights, um, various kinds of equality or lack thereof and how that impacts artists and people um, and how artists express that in the book form. Why are rare books important? Like, right? Like, where? Why are we still collecting things that are analog? Rare books and archives are about recording the history of thought. It's about being able to look to the past to think about things in a new and different way. This is true of artist books too, right? They're not necessarily very old, but it's somebody who's taken time to kind of slow down the thought process into turning pages and and working through. Um, some kind of narrative, whether it's just visual or whether it's also text. And I think especially in our digital world, that gives us time to sort of slow down and think about how things were produced, the kinds of processes of printing or creating images, um, or I mentioned Hooke's Micrographia. So we're talking about a 17th century microscope having to record these images and then turn them into engravings and then print them. I mean, there's a whole long process there that's not like taking a photograph and posting it on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, this ability to kind of slow down information and make us um, think about the creation of information and what that means, what that meant historically and what that means now, even though the modes may be really different. Because, of course, taking a photograph and posting it on Facebook is a kind of information creation. So I think I think being able to um, compare that as well is is really useful. So it sounds like the book the book is um, more than just about the title; it's about the creation and like the book as the as the artifact. Absolutely. So there's the information in the book, which of course is um, 
is really important, but there's also um, the printing processes that went into it, how those pages were created, how those pages were folded together, how they got bound into a book, and then what that book make, looks like. Does it have a leather cover? Does it have a fabric cover? Does it have... Um, how is it decorated? Maybe it's decorated with an inset panel of a different leather, or maybe it's got um, tooling, which is, you know, using a, a warm tool to make imprints on leather primarily. So how is that book created is also a really interesting question. And we, we certainly have staff um, or faculty here at Emory that are really interested in, in that part of the book production as well. What was your career path? Do you have a background in in publishing or making books? Like, how did you become the rare books librarian that we know and love here at Rose? Um, not a straight line. Um, <laughs> I've always been interested in um, how things are put together. Um, and so when I was an undergraduate um, at Oberlin, I actually worked in our book, um, our book conservation lab, which is where I learned kind of how books are actually sort of sort of mass market books are, are put together um, and learned how to repair them when they're, um, when different parts wear out. Um, and that was kind of the first spark of like, oh, well, there's the information, but then there's this whole thing that holds the information and, and sort of getting interested in, um, in that, how things are put together that way. Um, I do have some experience in bookbinding, um, not just not just as a student in a conservation lab, but doing my own binding. Um, I happen to have a partner who is a letterpress printer and bookbinder and book conservator. So um, that provides a lot of um, opportunity to or to work in his studio and to to work through um, different kinds of processes there. Um, and then the rest is education. Um, some of it is is um, formal. So I took, during my library degree, I took a rare book cataloging, and we talked a lot about how things are put together um, and materials as well. Um, I attended rare book school, which is um, based in Charlottesville. They're dedicated to different sorts of information about um, bibliographic study and about books and book history um, and materials history. Um, so I've taken a couple of classes there. And then some of it's just um, seeing what's in front of me that I need to catalog or that I might want to buy um, and thinking about, well, okay, so it's got the information inside we know was, you know, written and published in, in I don't know, 1750, but this binding is not from 1750. So when might have this binding have been put on? Um, is this is this something that's sort of contemporary? Who put it on? Was it well done? Was it not well done? Um, those are all sort of interesting questions when when something's in front of me that I'm looking at. Um, does that impact necessarily what a researcher might use it for? Yeah, actually, um, it might. So uh, you might be looking at, I don't know, 17th century panel bindings and how they're tooled or not tooled and whether they use tree calf or different kinds of leather or, or sheep or pigskin. So those are all things that people actually spend research time on. And it's kind of fascinating if you're geeky like me. Um, and, um, <laughs> so, um, and some of that's just um, kind of on the job learning. And I get fascinated about things and then I go looking for things to read or um, other information about particular topics. That's, that's kind of where a lot of it comes from. 
And do you have any favorites? My favorite is is often the thing that I cataloged last week, um, <laughs> but, um, or that I that I purchased for the collection last week. I do have some favorites. Um, the two that come to mind are um, we have a book called "The History of Four Footed Beasts." That is, um, it's amazing. Um, <laughs> and, um, it has, it, it has both text and images about everything, horses, mice, uh, kangaroos, which is pretty funny. Cause of course the person who wrote it had like no experience of kangaroos. Um, <laughs> but those important forfeited beasts like the manticore and the unicorn and the dragon, Team which are treated with dragon. exactly the same sort of seriousness and and attention as the horse and the pig and the dog, <laughs> um, and it's it's yeah it's particularly amazing. Did this person also go on a hobbit journey too? I'm just curious because with the dragon detail, did he say if they had a sword of gold or? <laughs> it, it's a little bit funny because the dragon actually only has two feet and little wings. He's very cute. Um, <laughs> And the manticore, I think, has something like 14 heads. Heads of women, of course, because it's a manticore. But a body of... It's unclear <laughs> from the image. I'm sure if I read the whole the whole explanation, I would I would know exactly what a manticore what was and be able to yeah. recognize one when I see it on the street. What year um, is this book created again? Uh, um, let's see, 1658. Okay, that, that is, tracks. Is the date yeah. for yeah. the history of four-footed beasts. Um... <laughs> Another big favorite that we have is um, we have um, the first atlas of the Milky Way that was ever created, um, published uh, posthumously, actually. Um, And uh, it's it was a limited edition. I think there's I think there were 900 maybe made if I'm remembering correctly. But um, the amazing thing is that the the. Images were taken through a telescope, and they are silver gelatin prints, which um, silver gelatin photographic prints are really luminous. They have a very um, deep quality to them. Um, uh, and so all the there's two volumes, and one is the, the chart so that you can tell what you're looking at, and the other one is all these silver gelatin prints. Um, and they're just... They're just completely fascinating. As you turn through the book, you can just get sucked into these deep black star photographs. Um, and so that's another one of my my big favorites. It's the Bernard Star uh, Atlas of the Milky Way. And what year was that one? Um, 1911. 1911. Yep. Oh, okay. Um, and Barnard picked out all the the photographs, all the all the copies of the photographs, all the prints himself, um, and then he passed away before it could be published. But um, the the publisher went ahead and published it anyway. As a rare books librarian, and um, I'm going to ask this, and it's a very serious question: um, Do you cry, or maybe have feelings about the burning of the library at Alexandria? Was that still like hot, like the the amount of knowledge that was lost in those archives? Yes <laughs> and no. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so one of the interesting things about the historical record in printed material is that, of course, we only have what comes down to us, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. man, many, many, many things were printed that that we'll never see. 
that no copies exist, or copies may be yet to be found, right? Things lurk in private libraries, things lurk in barn attics. Um, so you never quite know what we might still find. Um, yeah, I try not to think about that too much. I think really hard about what we have and preserving um, that material. I'm also, for our printed materials, I'm um, the liaison to our conservation department. So just making sure that I'm aware of what's going on and that things that need special boxes so that they can be in good condition, get special boxes and things that might rip, go down to get a little reinforcement so they won't. And so I, I, I think harder about conserving and preserving the knowledge that, that um, lives in Rose Library for future researchers yeah. more than sort of thinking back to um, what we lost. <laughs> what, well, and it's not just Alexandria, right? Like mm -hmm. monasteries got sacked and, the LA public library burned down and, um, you know, yeah. uh, so, so information has been lost in many, many ways, but, um, yes, that's sad, but, but we have such amazing ridge records that remain that, that that's sort of more important for me to focus on. And so what advice would you have for someone who wanted to become a rare books librarian? I think if you have the ability to, to do an internship, um, and really just sort of immerse yourself a little bit in some rare materials. Um, that's really great. Obviously, currently um, with the COVID uh, crisis going on, that's a little difficult. But um, that was really so um, early when I was still in library school, I did an internship at the University of Iowa Special Collections um, where I where I knew their special collections librarian um, <laughs> and um, and did some cataloging. And it was really brilliant because one of the things that that he really encouraged me to do is just to go into their lock stacks um, and just browse, just take, take things carefully off the shelf and look and see what's there. And, um, you know, just kind of experience those, those things up close and get to touch them and look them and, and turn the pages for myself. And I think that was really um, seminal to, to become a rare book librarian for me because it was a chance to just really, um, look at whatever I wanted to and to, to find the things that were interesting to me, um, without any, you know, there, unfortunately people can't generally do that, but if you're interested in rare book librarianship and you can do an internship, like I love bringing people and just like, let's walk through the stacks and see mm -hmm. cool stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, cause that's really, um, kind of an amazing opportunity to, to pull things off to the shelf that are interesting to you. Right. Um, so you get to sort of um, immerse yourself in in the things that that you have a natural draw to. And if you could like, I know you, I'm asking you two favorite, but if you had to do an exhibit that just explain to you know what you just said, the advice for real books librarian, what other books would you pull for them to see to kind of spark their interest? Hmm. I think I think one of the strengths of our um, collection that we're actively working on is that we represent lots of voices, um, and that has to do with different um, kinds of people, but mm -hmm. also different kinds of topics. So um, we have science materials, we have literature materials. We can talk about a lot of different subjects, and so I think um, one of the hard things would be would be to come up with a good canvas of of all the different things that we have um, that might appeal to somebody. 
you, know, you did a really great job with um, the exhibit that you mentioned earlier. Like, I really enjoyed that exhibit. I wish more people could have seen it. That was Common Thread was really interesting. Um, so Common Thread's uh, Women's Experience Through Artist Books was a um, uh, exhibit that I co-curated with Jennifer Elder, who's our Women's Studies uh, librarian in Woodruff Library. And uh, we ended up with four cases, all full of artist books um, by women, sort of that had that made commentary on how women are seen in society mm. um, or how women actually are. And um, it was so amazing because when you put together an exhibit, of course, you don't start with uh, 20, I think we had 24 things in over four cases or something like that, or 18 in the end. I think we had to cut some. But anyway, um, you know, we didn't start out with those 18 things. We started out with, I think we originally pulled some, almost 60 items mm-hmm. from the stacks to sort of consider and to think about um, how we might display them and how they might fit into a narrative. Um, and, you know, in a way it was sort of a shame to only come up with those 18. Mm-hmm. And yet um, it was it was really interesting to sort of distill it down and then to come to realize that they fell into themes almost on their own. Um, and so that really helped us put the cases together. Um, and it was an amazing education, right? Because I got mm-hmm. to see 60 things and maybe maybe I had seen in person 10 of them or 12 of them before. Um, and I really got to, to do a deep dive on yeah. a certain topic in our collection. And that was really amazing. And it was, it was such a really good, um, like it helped me too in, in my outreach. And it's one of the things that I like to highlight to um, to anybody that I can highlight uh, certain of the books. I'm like, here, and it's like, what is this? Well, this is an artist book. It's not a book where, you know, it's, and it's kind of like that idea of like, it lets them know that a book can be in different formats. It's not just yep. one thing. Um, and so that brings me to my next question. What's a, a, a common misconception about your job as a rare book librarian or what's considered rare in, in, in books? Well, I know that something that often people will call and say, well, I have the set of encyclopedias from 1924. Do you want to add them to your collection? (laughs) Now, I'm sure that a set of encyclopedias from 1924 are fascinating in so many ways, but that doesn't actually fit our collection. So we don't actually collect just old stuff. And old stuff is not necessarily rare stuff or uh, not necessarily interesting. I mean, things can be old and not so rare, but still of interest to our researchers. Mm-hmm. I could probably line our shelves with um, pre-1950 encyclopedias. but <laughs> um, <laughs> And I do I have people um, call and offer things that we already have on our shelves. That's um, That happens with um, a few certain titles. Um, and of course, I have to, one thing that I had to learn is to gently say, Thank you so much for this offer. I'm afraid at this time we don't we're not going to add that to our collection. Yeah, I think I think generally about about rare book collections, there's a misconception that just like if it's old, it must be something that that we need to preserve in our collection. Um, and that's not necessarily true. And um, some things are so ubiquitous that really, I mean, if you wanted 1924. Um, encyclopedias, it, they're probably a dime a dozen on eBay. I hate to say it, but um, <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, I think that's a, a common misconception is that we just take old stuff and we want all the old stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I, I don't want all the old stuff. Some old stuff I want, but not all the old stuff. <laughs> yeah, not all the old things. Well, um, that's all the questions I have. But is there anything that you want our listeners to know about what you do? I think it is a common misconception about librarians that we spend all the time reading, mm-hmm. which we certainly have things in the collection that I would be happy to spend hours and hours and hours perusing. But uh, I think the really important thing about librarians and archivists um, and all librarians and all archivists actually is that they have specialized knowledge and that they're really looking out for anyone who comes in who needs that knowledge of either what they know or what they what they can find for you in their collection to answer questions that you have. Um, and I, I think this is true of my, all my colleagues as well, that, um, if you come in and say, I'm looking for information about X, we're going to do your darndest to find you information about X and whether that's an archival collection or a rare book or an artist book or, um, whatever that might be. Um, I think that's, I think that's the thing that makes me proudest of being any kind of librarian, but especially a rare book librarian, um, is that, that people have have information needs and um we are here to try and help them fulfill those needs um so that's i think that's my favorite thing about being a librarian behind the archives is produced by lily Tarot and Nick Twimlow. Jacob Chisenhall is our editor. Music created by Sister Sai. We are grateful for the support provided by our colleagues at the Rose Library, Jennifer King, director of the Rose Library, and Yolanda Cooper, dean of Emory Libraries. Special thanks to Beth Shoemaker and to the Emory Center for Digital Scholarship. Please join us next month when I will be on the other side of the mic as my co-producer, Nick Twimlow, talks with me about my role as the Community Outreach Archivist for the Rose Library. For more information about Rose Library and our other podcast series, Community Conversations, and Atlanta Intersections, please visit us online at rose.library.emory.edu and follow us on Rose Library's Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find Behind the Archives and our other podcasts on all your favorite podcast feeds.